we all have a nervous system. When you're not educated about what's happening within your body and you're not able to have at least a handful of tools to re-regulate, you're just at the mercy of it. And so are your relationships. I would like to see everyone in the world knowing about this and having some type of nervous system practice. And from a leadership standpoint, I really think that this should be a requirement of leaders and within organizations for so many reasons. And not just because you'll have a better organization and you'll make more money, which you will, but because if you push through as a leader and you don't understand regulation and you can't manage your stress, burnout will turn into illness. Raise 1000 Voices is the podcast on a mission to raise the voices of the clever, creative and courageous women across the world. I am your host, Jacqueline Nagel, and I invite you to join me in conversations with women who will inspire and empower you as we explore just how to lift our levels of self-trust, to reclaim the narrative and to use our voice to go after exactly what we want, doing it with strength, power and grace. I am so excited about our next conversation on Raise 1000 Voices. It is with my gorgeous friend from the USA, Maggie Felton. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. It's incredible. I just mentioned that you're connecting with us from the US this morning. Where exactly in the US are you? I am in Providence, Rhode Island. Ooh, just north of New York, my favorite space over there. So Maggie, I've known you for a while now, but for the benefit of our audience, can you just walk us through your story, how you came to be Maggie on the 3rd of May, 2023, and walk us through how you got here? Yes. So from an entrepreneurial perspective, I started out as a contractor for a podcast booking agency and then worked my way up to becoming the first employee, 50% owner and CEO which led me on this like entrepreneurial journey, which is everyone who owns a business knows is like the most exciting thing ever. And there's so much like learning and growth that happens in all different types of spaces. Yeah. And so really like evolving as a leader and as a business owner, that's, you know, how we met and started working together because I really, it went from, okay, I own this business. I talk about this business for the marketing for the business to telling other stories and creating interesting content. And that journey that I think a lot of young entrepreneurs go on, which is you've got your business, you've got your brand story, but you also have your personal brand and your personal yeah. story and learning how to weave those two together and start to tell your story, which really led me on this journey of working with you really closely, starting to tell the story about my own past, losing my dad to suicide, starting a podcast about grief and death and high achieving grievers and how high achievers handle loss, which led then down this rabbit hole of becoming obsessed with nervous system regulation and how <laughs> leaders can process their trauma and regulate their nervous system to be the best leaders that they can possibly be and to then create these thriving organizations. Yeah, it's been a, quite a journey because when you actually first came in, you came in to my world. I mean, we met through a mastermind in the US and you came into my world to really unpack the story of the business and with your business partner as well. 
And when we started working together in the first workshop that we did, it was very apparent really quickly. And we kind of, we were trying to look at how we brought these big stories of your background into the brand story, but then we realized I was completely separate. And that took a real leap of faith for you. Can you like take us through, because I remember my perspective of it, it was a real leap of faith for you to go, actually, I can stand in the power of my personal story. I can actually start to create my personal brand that kind of happened over those first three days together and then in those couple of months immediately after because it was a big shift for you. Yeah, it was definitely a big shift because I had gone from being fully behind the scenes at Interview Connections and growing it and doing the operations, but really not being the face of the business to then doing more you know, public facing things to, but talking about podcasts and those things to then, you know, spending those days with you and wanting to stay on topic. But as is kind of typical (laughs) for me, ending up going down a really deep multi-year rabbit hole tangent that turned out to be like exactly what I needed. But it definitely does take something, I think, for people and entrepreneurs to start to go deep into their story. And I think also as an entrepreneur, it can be hard if you don't see the immediate monetization possibility of something. It can be hard to give it the time and attention that it deserves. And I think I was really lucky to have found you and to just have this like real connection to you and this just feeling intuitively that this needed to be followed, even though I really had no idea where it was going or how and if it would be monetized. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was one of the most interesting things about exploring, and we will explore the story behind Margie in a moment, but really exploring how you could make it because to start with, it was very much trying to push it back into the bumper rails within Interview Connections. And then we pushed it outside of that. When we pushed outside of that, though, that is actually when you stumbled on this research about eminent orphans and how leaders deal with loss because we were actually building something. So anyone who's worked with me knows that I don't believe it's enough to speak into a thought bubble. You've got to be able to actually, you know, go deeper in it. And we sent you down a rabbit hole that came up with this research around eminent orphans. And I think that kind of ignited something. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and the research? And one, what you found? And two, what it actually meant for you personally? Yes. So in creating the signature keynote with you and you encouraging me to like do some research and like learn (laughs) about this. I don't know what I expected to find, but I was sort of just at first checking a box of like, I did research and here's my bullet point. So Jack won't get mad at me. I knew that that's what you were doing to start with. (laughs) Let's be honest. I know. I have no poker face. But then once I started researching and came upon, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell who has the most info on this. And all of this research on eminent orphans and this really bizarre correlation between people who have lost parents being high achievers. And like the majority of people who went on to be president or went on to, you know, have multiple paragraphs in the encyclopedia, a a much higher percentage of them than of the average population had experienced a profound loss at a reasonably young age. And this was so interesting to me because I was like, why is this? And also, it really was my experience. Like when I lost my dad, it was horrible. But I also had all of these huge transformational breakthroughs, and I didn't really know how to contextualize that or like feel 
good about that because I love my dad and like you never want to be like, I'm glad my dad died because now I'm so successful because it's not like that. But it was this weird kind of juxtaposition of going through this horrible thing and missing my dad and, you know, wishing that he was back, but also having to face what incredible breakthroughs I had as a result of going so deep into this grief. And so I think there was a big light bulb that went off when I read that research and also maybe a sigh of relief that like, this is a thing that happens. It's not just me. Yeah. One of the things that we also did as part of really getting your story out completely was you wrote the draft of a book, which may never be published because it was enough to just bring the story through. But what was the thing you discovered in that process of actually really bringing your story to life in a way that other people may read? It was so helpful. I really think that creating long form content like that, even though I don't really put out long form content, but no, and side note, we're circling back to this. You've actually decided you never want to speak, so we'll we'll go through that for our audience as well in a moment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I really think that you can't create effective short content like blog posts and social media posts if you haven't done the work to go deep and create this longer content. And I think even if, like me, you never actually publish and who knows but like I went down this long memoir rabbit hole and then was like ah this is a bummer I don't want to write a memoir but I learned so much and that has informed everything that I do now when I'm guesting on podcasts when I'm writing my blog and it really does make a huge difference and add a lot of depth to short content that I think can otherwise be a little bit surface level. Yeah. What did you take away from the process of actually having to pull that story together in a way that might be published in the public arena? What was it that you learned about your voice and your story in that process? Well, besides the fact that it's really hard to write a book, and I have a lot of respect, (laughs) that is brutal. I think I definitely just, I feel like I got to know myself better. And I think when stuff is in your head, It's so different from actually putting it into words. And I think it allowed me to get to know myself better, to kind of crystallize ideas and IP that I had that I didn't know that I had. And I wouldn't have found if I hadn't have been forced to get so much out on paper or on a Google Doc in this situation. Yes, you wrote on Google Docs. I do remember that. Pixar also have, we've been doing some stuff around story shaping lately, and Pixar have this philosophy that a story isn't a story until it's on paper, that whilst you're in your head is actually not a story. And that process that you just described is the perfect explanation because until you actually go to say it out loud or put it on paper, it's actually just something in your head. It's just running around randomly. When um, And this is the bit that I love about what you did with the work that we did together. That actually led you to doing a limited series podcast. And I really want to unpack this because, number one, the title. So you want to throw it at us, the title of the podcast series? Yes, the title of the podcast is We Get It, Your Dad Died. Which turned out to be as a limited series podcast. I think you've done two seasons of it, haven't you? Two or three. Two or three. I owe at least one more. I have a list of guests and I just haven't (laughs) scheduled the new season yet. This is why doing limited series seasons is a really good idea for some people. (laughs) Yes. Tell me about what led to actually creating that and, and then what you discovered as that first series unfolded. So part of it was doing this work with you and going so deep into the story. And then I had a conversation 
it was at an event for mostly seven and eight figure women business owners. And I started talking to another woman, another business owner who had lost her mom and Brandy. She's on two episodes of my show. And we just got into this very, and I really like like deep dive conversations. I'm really not a small talk person, even if we like just met, like tell me everything. (laughs) And (laughs) so we got into this, I don't know how we even got there, but over lunch and there was other people at the table, but I was just so focused on her and her story. And she was sharing about her mom who she had lost a couple years previously and kind of sharing about what it was like to lose her. And then just some really sweet stories about her mom, like feeding the deer in their backyard and how she knew them all. And she had names for them all. And she knew all their babies. Like she had like gotten to know them. And there was something about that story and how personal it was and how endearing it was that just gave me chills and I felt like I knew her mom and I just became really interested in these stories like particularly stories of loss from really successful high performers and so the combination of doing this work and kind of drawing out this story and writing more about grief and then having that conversation is what culminated in wanting to create a series where I could have these conversations and other people could listen in on them. What did she discover as you started doing the recordings festival will go there and then actually the response from the public? So number one is as you weave your way through these conversations with these guests, what started to unfold for you from a personal perspective and what did you find and discover? Okay, I'm going to try and answer this question without getting too weird. Um, (laughs) You can go weird. (laughs) There was a few things that I really wasn't prepared for with the show. And I think the biggest one is like, I was like, are people going to want to do this? Because this is like really personal. It's kind of depressing. So I wasn't sure I was going to be able to find high performers who were like, yeah, I'll talk to you for an hour about everything that happened when this person died. But people wanted to. They wanted to share the stories so badly. I have a long waiting list of people who want to be guests on the show because they always say, like, I never talk about this. And these are like prolific people who have a lot of stuff out there, books, podcasts. And they're like, I never tell this story. But actually, I feel like this is one of the things that influenced me most as a human being, as an entrepreneur, as a leader. So that really struck me. And then the other thing that struck me is how much the show really became not necessarily about the audience, although we'll talk about the audience because there was stuff there too, but really a space for healing for the person I was talking to and a legacy for the person that they had lost so that people could get to know them. And I thought about a lot like, why am I doing this show? Like, why was I even inspired to? And it almost felt like it was like the loved ones kind of wanted it in a weird way for this healing moment. And occasionally, and this is why it gets weird, occasionally there would be times where I would be like moved to say something to them as if like they wanted them to know. Like, it sort of felt like I was like an advocate for the dead. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And 
it's a place we go in a lot of our conversations within my client group, not necessarily advocate for the dead, but that ability to actually tap into the true messaging. So it doesn't surprise me. So it became a really cathartic process for everyone. I was a guest on that show. I spoke about things I'd never spoken about before. And you have a gift for that, which is really amazing. I think though, kind of for me as a guest, it was like, okay, that great, that's done. And it's kind of like, it's a really gorgeous idea, but who's going to be interested in listening outside of those of us who have been on the podcast, thinking that it would get published into almost like the ether, but that didn't happen, did it? No, people loved it. It was crazy. Also, I want to clarify, I don't feel like I'm someone who speaks to dead people or anything like that. No, no, like it's just messaging channeling. Right. Mes- no messaging no offense to anyone who does. That's right. not me. But it was this like weird co-creation between me and them. And- yeah. Yeah. And sometimes the- it's just literally your heart being involved. It's not necessarily. Yeah. It's just literally my heart is here. My heart is fully with you. And there's that energetic connection. It's not necessarily that it's that connection to the spiritual or psychic, but it's that energetic heart-to-heart connection when you're actually in that really vulnerable space. Sometimes that's actually what it is because you can feel into that relationship. You can feel into that voice. And that's actually the ultimate conversation, which is the ultimate speaking, the ultimate, you know, that's actually the ultimate conversation is you are so present to who you are speaking with that you know and you trust what comes up for you. So I completely understand that. And so, you know, saying that it's we weren't connecting with the dead, it's I don't think it is. I think it's this incredible space that you created where the energy between hearts connects. Yeah, that's such a good way to put it. And that is really what it feels like in the interviews. It's like, I feel so much love for the person, so much love for their loved one. And it's just like a very touching experience overall. And that's probably part of the reason why I haven't started recording again, because the amount of energy that it takes to be fully present in that space, I find that like afterwards and sometimes even the next day, I need to like recover yeah, absolutely. And that's why it's an energetic charge and exchange. One of the things that we were just about to do, you know, and I think that's what we felt when we listened to the podcast. I know I was surprised when I actually listened to the episodes back. I couldn't get enough of them. And it feels and sounds like your audience was the same, like people really took to this. Yeah, the feedback was really incredible. It was so touching. I saved like all the screenshots of all the messages <laughs> I got because, I mean, it was such a weird thing to put out like it had sort of like a tongue-in-cheek like sarcastic title but then it was these really heavy stories like it was just like it was very maggy it was very (laughs) me but whenever something is very me I'm I'm like I don't know if other people are really gonna like get this I think this is just like my weird thing but it wasn't just my weird thing the feedback was amazing and the messages I got were so heartfelt. Like it meant so much to people, so many people and people from like all walks of life, people who I don't know, people who I do know, but from like random places in my past. Like it was just so many different types of people reached out to me and were so grateful and so moved and it had meant so much to them. And it was a, it was a really beautiful thing to receive. 
Yeah, amazing. This whole rabbit hole that you went down and you have been beside your business partners, you've gone interview connections to multi-seven figures and, you know, edging ever closer to the eight. With that, that pathway that, you know, it actually, I think it strengthened your role as a leader. It showed you how to communicate better. You were, there were all these things that happened for you. But there was this other parallel path because you went down the rabbit hole with eminent orphans and you kept going down rabbit holes. So where did that lead you to, which has become your latest obsession? So my latest obsession is nervous system regulation, which while it wasn't like a direct result of that research, it was sort of this ongoing journey in like self-understanding and personal growth and personal development and grief and all of this, which is so interconnected. And then working with Elizabeth Kristoff, who is a client of Interview Connections, and she was teaching this neuro stuff and all these neurosomatic tools, which I was incredibly incredibly skeptical of like Jess was like yeah he sounds great like Jess is like all in like sounds amazing and I was like mm, I don't believe this yeah and then Jimmy, baby <laughs> exactly <laughs> and then started actually doing them and then started realizing that so many things had been nervous system outputs that I did not think were nervous system outputs that I thought were like personality deficits or just anxiety, like all of this stuff. And so ended up then getting really interested in this intersection of regulating your nervous system and organizational leadership because I got really obsessed with how to create agile teams and how to apply Scrum outside of software companies in a done-for-you agency model while I was simultaneously becoming obsessed with nervous <laughs> system regulation and then marrying the two because the more that I deepened my knowledge of agile organizations, the more that you start this ecosystem thinking where you're not managing people or work, you're really managing the ecosystem, which is so much a part of your nervous system and people co-regulating to each other. And so it just kind of naturally led to this obsession. Let's just back up for a moment there because the thing that just got my attention there is, you know, I can be just as obsessive as you, um, especially when it comes to anything that's about healing and story and neuro. And the thing that you just said there that I think most people miss and why this matters is the co-regulation. Can you unpack that a little bit for people? Because I think this is really important because we are all becoming more aware of trauma. We're all becoming more aware of grief. We're all becoming more aware of impacts and we're in control of our neuro. But I think the thing that most people miss is that it sets the thermostat. So can you take us a little bit more into this co-regulation aspect, especially because you've got this, like what is seen as really technical, you know, almost masculine, corporate, agile, scrum perspective colliding with the neuro and why this co-regulation came up for you and why it matters. Yes. So co-regulation is just the reality that for social animals, we co-regulate to each other. So our nervous systems are communicating with each other without us knowing it. So mm -hmm. like there is a reason that people give you a bad vibe. It's not that they're a bad person. It's probably that they're dysregulated. They could just remind you of something that you didn't like and it has nothing to do with them. But a lot of the time it can be their nervous system. Like you probably can think of right now people who you love because you feel really calm and grounded around them. And then people who are the opposite, who when you're around them, you are your worst self and it takes 
days to like recover from being with them. And so it's really powerful as leaders to learn how to regulate your own nervous system because as a leader, everyone else is co-regulating to you for the most part. And so when leaders are dysregulated, even if they have all the best intentions and they think, well, they can't see it, it's, you know, they don't know I'm dysregulated, I'm doing all the right things, they can feel it. And it causes this sort of like mass dysregulation in organizations, which leads to, you know, bad work and people not understanding why stuff is not working. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting. I can't remember. It was on a podcast with Brené Brown, whether it was Adam Grant or Scott Sean Field, one of those guys, Scott Sean Sign. One of them actually said that they've now actually proven like, you know, because co-regulation is the same. That's actually where Jim Rohn's original comment of you are the sum title of the five people you surround yourself with comes from, all that sort of stuff. And they've actually now proven that not only does it do that, if you stay in the same environment that's not good for you or is better for you, both ends of the extreme, that the energetic exchange actually changes your DNA over time, right? And so that blew my mind, which is why I just landed on that co-regulation bit, because we actually, everyone kind of, we almost take it with a grain of salt now, the old statement of you are the sum total of the environment you're in. But in actual point of fact, it can actually change you at a cellular level. And we're in control of that, because if we actually understand how to regulate and how to re-regulate for most of us, then we actually can set the thermostat around us. When it comes to leadership, why is that in your mind absolutely critical? Like, yes, you just gave us the expression, but what is the cost of not understanding this at a leadership level? Oh, it's brutal. I mean, all of the attributes of bad leadership, diminishing leadership, micromanaging, control, being erratic, right? Giving your team whiplash, being in a flight response. So like, we're doing this. Okay, now we're doing this. You keep changing gears. Like all the things that make your team miserable and are really ineffective are nervous system outputs. So micromanaging the need to control comes from fear, right? It comes from a threat response. And if you don't know that and you can't get regulated, you're going to just act on it and you're going to start controlling people. You're going to start controlling their work. It's such a little thing, but it's totally changed my leadership is being able to be quiet. I just did a video about this today. Like when things are going wrong, the launch isn't going as planned, not jumping in and just like giving a bunch of solutions, but leaving space for your leaders to solve problems and letting them cry, letting them sit in silence with you, asking a couple questions instead of telling them things. This stuff totally changes lives. It changes their leadership. It changes your organization. You have to be so regulated to stay calm and let long silences go, but they're so valuable. Absolutely. We, the most recent keynote that I do, I actually stand on the stage and stay quiet for the first minute to actually get people really aware of where their minds go. The panic that bubbles up, there's no reason to panic. I'm standing safely in in the stage in front of you. But there's an internal what's going on, what's she doing, why isn't she speaking, da da da. And I do it deliberately to actually talk about the fact that none of us can hold space anymore. We all talk about holding space, but none of us actually can truly do that anymore. So I love that aspect and that element. With this obsession that you've got with it, what's the biggest difference you've seen, not just for yourself, but for the people surrounding you? I mean, I know that the people in my life really appreciate that I'm more regulated yeah. now. <laughs> my wife Sorry, in particular. 
<laughs> my wife in particular has said that I'm much nicer. Um, <laughs> but from an organizational <laughs> standpoint, I think having the language, one of my favorite things about it is having the language around nervous system regulation and dysregulation because you can be really good at regulating your nervous system, but the goal is never to be regulated all the time. Like that wouldn't be healthy. That's almost psychopathy. Right. We get dysregulated. It's about knowing when you're getting dysregulated, having the tools to recover faster, not doing damage, right? Being able to release strong emotions in a way that's not like yelling at someone. But I really think having the team have the language, like they'll say all the time to me, this is a great example. One of my leaders was going to have a conversation with someone else on the team. And she said, according to the rules of radical candor, I should have had that conversation with him right away. I'm having it tomorrow instead because I know that I'm dysregulated. And that like Boom. gave me Skills. That yeah. that is the power of leadership and the nervous system coming together and organizations starting to understand the nervous system and the role it plays. I love this because, you know, when I went through learning a little about neurolinguistics and doing all my certifications and accreditations in that space, which was a forerunner to what we're talking about now, is you know, it was very much about actually creating the space. And that even goes back to Viktor Frankl's work, like, you know, between stimulus and response, there is a space that we can choose our response. The fact that actually we're creating environments where people can not only recognize that, but have the opportunity to breathe and stop and do it at a better time, like that to most people of our generation and older will be mind-blowing, that we're actually creating an environment where it's okay to, because the old style was, no, it needs to be dealt with. Radical candor tells you you need to do it in the moment right now. Our feedback mechanisms have changed from performance reviews to do it in the moment. The conversations about, you know, do it as it happens and that sort of stuff. And I love this because I've always felt uncomfortable because I know that 90% of the time when there's a difficult conversation to be had, I'm coming from the wrong space. I'm coming from a trauma response. But if I take, so I've always implemented 24-hour response. And it's really interesting because in my personal relationships, and you talked about your wife being happier, it takes a long time for people to realize, you know, when people are really close to me, I don't respond straight away. I put a 24 hours. If it's really significant, I put 72 hour marker in it. And then I circle back to it and they see it as I'm coming back to them to try and sandbag. It's just like, no, now I've had time to calm down. Now I've had time to come to you in a really balanced perspective and I can speak into the emotions it's created with me without being emotional and I've got space now to hold your response but if I do it in that first period of time it's like I it, it just escalates and it goes completely where it's not meant to go and so it's interesting because I'm hoping that the work that you're doing brings more awareness to that is not like scapegoating or ghost or ghosting or sorry gaslighting or anything that is simply if I come at you now this is I'm going to burn it to the ground if I right. take some time I'll get back into who I truly am at core and we can do this is that kind of resonating with you like is that what you see yeah, absolutely. And I think the language really neutralizes it because instead of saying, you're pissing me off, I need, I can't talk to you right now, saying, I'm recognizing that I'm getting dysregulated right now. So I'm going to regulate my nervous system and come back to this when I can talk about it really calmly. So it takes the blame away from the other person and away from self. And it just makes it this sort of objective thing, right? The nervous system is your operating system and it's doing what it's doing. And being able to observe that is a level of mindfulness that I think is just so 
powerful and I think can be more intuitive than more abstract types of mindfulness that I think people kind of struggle with. Yeah. And I think also too, when you're going through, and maybe this is just my personal experience, so I'm happy with your experience for you to kind of challenge me on this. But one of the things I've noticed is that mindfulness that is not taking me closer to a resolution is actually something that when you come out of a trauma response, I know when I was dealing and unpacking with all of that over the years, me coming out of a trauma response or dysregulation, I think mindfulness is something that feels too abstract and doesn't feel like it's taking you anywhere. Whereas this is actually, I'm actually staying really present to who I am and I'm understanding how to not upset my environment and I'm understanding how to put language around it. I think that mindfulness when you're coming from a dysregulation is probably more powerful. Is that being your experience? Yeah, I think it reminds me of a big tenet of agility is transparency. And one of the things we talk about with the team is like, okay, you can have transparency in the work and see what's getting done, but you also have a plan for if you see what's getting done and it's not correct, right? It's not the right amount. It's not prioritized, right? And so I think mindfulness without tools is sort of like transparency with no plan. It's like, okay, we've got the transparency. We can see what's going on, but what do you do? What do we do with it? Yeah. (laughs) What do we do with it? I love this uh, so much. So where do you want to see this neurosomatics that you're really obsessed with at the moment? Where do you want to see it? What's the future? What's your vision? What's your obsession with it? Where do you want to take it? I want to see it everywhere. I want everybody learning to regulate their nervous system. I think therapy and medication and all that type of stuff is great. And I think that this is another tool that can be used in addition for people who are using therapy and medication. For me, I find it much more helpful than therapy. And I just think everybody, because we all have a nervous system, and when you're not educated about what's happening within your body and you're not able to have at least a handful of tools to re-regulate, you're just at the mercy of it. And so are your relationships, right? Like the attachment styles are just your nervous system in relationship. Like all of these things are nervous system related. So I would like to see everyone in the world (laughs) knowing about this and having some type of nervous system practice and some type of awareness of what it feels like when I'm regulated versus dysregulated. And from a leadership standpoint, I really think that this should be a requirement of leaders and within organizations for so many reasons. And not just because you'll have a better organization and you'll make more money, which you will, but because if you push through as a leader and you don't understand regulation and you can't manage your stress, burnout will turn into illness. And I think that so many high achievers have been through a lot of trauma and become really high achievers. And while it's not bad to be a high achiever, you need these tools more than anyone because you will push your body and your nervous system too far. That obsession with wanting to get it into everyone's hands and believing that everyone should have access to it, is that behind, and I'm going to go there, your TikTok success? Yes. Yeah. It absolutely so the only, is. The only uh, multi-million dollar CEO figure that I know who has a massive following on TikTok, that I know that there'll be hundreds of them, but I personally know you. And it has ricocheted for you. Uh, sorry, it has really ramped up for you. It's gone really, really fast. There's a couple of things. So it's because you're sharing neuro tools. Is that right? Yes. For the most part, people are the most interested in the nervous system regulation. Yeah. And tell us about that audience. How fast has it grown for you? It's grown pretty quickly. I was posting consistently on TikTok like 
five times a week, like once a day on weekdays and kind of a, a range of things. And then I had been mostly focusing on Instagram and posting to TikTok as an afterthought. And then I had a video go not viral, but it got like 40,000 views. And it actually wasn't a neuro video. It was it was like literally just like me on my walk listening to a law of attraction book and being like, Neville Goddard just said this and it was a great reminder. And people were like, thank you so much for the reminder. And I was like, this is the platform for me. Like I'm wasting my time on Instagram. So it wasn't just that a video popped off, but it was like the type of video it was because yeah. the only things on that have been going viral on Instagram were like dumb videos of my wife and my pets, which like love that, but not like on topic. So then I switched over to Instagram that or to TikTok and focusing there full time. And so I was not my full time job, but like full time yeah. social media. And yeah, then I had a neuro drill, the infinity walk. And like so I had been steadily gaining followers on TikTok. I was at like maybe a thousand, two thousand. But I was like I was getting to have more than I had on Instagram really fast. So I was like, great. And then I had this video go. It got like six hundred thousand views or something. And it was a, a neuro drill tutorial of a the infinity walk, which is a vestibular drill. And people were like crazy about it. They, I had like so many comments of people like, okay, how long do I do this? And I was like, wow, people are really into this. And so I started, I continued posting more um, neuro content. And then, you know, over a few months, I'm at like 46,000 followers. Now I've had a video almost get to 2 million views. Amazing. Yeah, it's been cool. And I think I will say that I'm careful what I post on TikTok because there are a lot of neuro drills that and you would know this from like NLP too. like that stuff can be dangerous. Like there, I post really gentle stuff. Yeah. And now I post it with a warning. But the majority of neuro drills I would not post on social media like you need to work with a facilitator and I direct yeah. people to my bio to like work with a facilitator. But even just like really gentle, easy tools. People have been really loving that, which is cool. I love that. I love that. So between we get it, eat dad died and the CEO on TikTok, I think you're actually breaking the mold. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm definitely doing something random with all the tangents. You definitely are. You definitely are. What is, um, and we're going to have to wrap, I can, like, as usual, we can talk forever. We are quite often have spoken forever over the last four or five years or however long since we met. A few questions before we wrap up. Are you a book or a podcast girl? Audiobooks. Audiobooks. Ooh, combination. What's yeah. your go-to? What's your one that you want that you like say to people all the time? You must read this. I have so many, kind of like one for each category. But if I just had to pick not any category, I would say the surrender experiment right now. Oh, Michael Singer. It's magical. So good. Yeah. And the audiobook is really nice. That's a great one. I've actually just finished reading the the actual book. Um, oh, cool. and love it so much and I kind of done his and I'm doing Matthew McConaughey's work at the same time with green lights and it's like everything's about surrender and I love it I have to learn how to do it I might need some more of that neuro drills <laughs> me too still, I think that's why we love surrender, surrender. <laughs> I know <laughs> I'm still not great at surrender I'm, I'm gonna try and master that one one day and obviously there's really big stories and I would love everybody to go to your your actual story is episode one of We Get It, Your Dad Died. So if people can head over there and listen, that's where you'll 
full personal story, which is fascinating and beautiful. And there was obviously, there was a lot that you took out of that process and the grief process, but you were, there was a Margie, a little Margie and a teenage Margie, and now there's Margie doing what she does now. If you think about little Margie, what is it about that little girl that you've brought through that you still hold with you today? And it'd be really random. Yeah, totally. A love of animals. I'm yeah. a hardcore animal lover and I always random. I don't think that's random. Okay. Well, it's not business related, but not. I always I always think about now that I do neurosomatic work, like how many things I thought were personality traits that are actually trauma responses. I always come back to loving animals as like, this may be my only true personality trait. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also too one of the things why we ask the question, because something that we bring through when we've had big stories, sometimes we forget that there's great, there's amazing things that have become part of us. But yeah, the fact that you're actually now going, this could be my only personality trait. I'm like, I'm going to ask this question every time now. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. (laughs) I love that. Maggie, where can people find you on social, on TikTok? What's your handle? My handle on TikTok is heymargie, M-A-R-G-Y. And then margie.com, M-A-R-G-Y.com is my website. And you can find um, We Get It, Your Dad Died there. Amazing. Maggie, thank you so much. It's always so great to have a conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Raise 1000 Voices. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And if you have, then I would love you to subscribe to and rate the show on your favorite platform. Our show notes, resources, and links to all our socials can be found at anygiventuesday.com.au forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to join a growing community of clever, creative, and courageous women who know that they want to be seen, heard, and remembered, then join us in our Facebook group, Raise 1000 Voices. Until we speak again, take care and remember, you were born to raise your voice.